Thanks for joining me today for BIV Daily, the Coping with COVID-19 podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. The Business Council of British Columbia has issued a report today on its consultations with business leaders and prescriptions for an economic recovery. There are about two dozen recommendations, a central one being tax reform, but several other measures to modernize education and work, improve the investment climate, and deal with climate change and childcare needs. Greg Davignon is CEO, President of the Council. He joins me now. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. What did you find uh, were the main anxieties of the business community at the moment as you, you tried to take a look at what kind of prescriptions you might provide? Well, it depends on which business you're in. BC has got among the most diverse economies anywhere in the country. And the irony of that is that while we've done, frankly, one of the best jobs in the world around managing the COVID uh, transmission and and curve, uh, we've been uh, ironically more impacted than almost any other country, pardon me, uh, jurisdiction in the country next to Quebec. Uh, particularly those consumer-facing industries where we're a little bit heavier weight on service sectors, on hospitality, and uh, and also uh, export-driven. So it depends on which business you're in. If you're in the technology business, if you're in quantum, if you're in VRAR and others, uh, you're actually up for the year. Hmm. Uh, but every other sector in the province is uh, uh, well below water. In fact, this is the biggest economic impact, Kirk, we've had in a century. Yeah. And... The big anxieties for larger businesses right now are really balance sheet stability. And by that, it's how do I make sure I've got the cash available to take advantage of opportunities that are going to present themselves globally or locally? How do I make sure I'm deploying capital in uh, really accelerating my capital plan around digital technology that's going to increase productivity and ultimately uh, reduce emissions, but also make me uh, more competitive in the global marketplace? The WTO, for example, expects that we're going to have 20 to 25% decline in global trade this year. And BC, over the last number of years, uh, probably going back six or seven years, has become a higher cost jurisdiction. So in other words, we're in the third or fourth quartile if you're on the land base and a lot of industries that are uh, bound by permits and regulations. In fact, Canada's got a problem in that regard. So the anxiety is how do we uh, become a lighter touch regulatory environment, not by cutting corners, but by increasing efficiency? And, you know, overall, it's that how do we create a better hosting environment for capital? And the so what of all that is that we've got over 230,000 people out of work. Some of those jobs are never going to come back because we're going to see businesses permanently shuttered. Uh, And the consequence is that uh, to get people back to work, to get the economy moving and governments, the revenue they need, more than half of the deficit in B.C. was a loss of revenue, not an increased spending is that we got to get the big engines, the economy moving, we got to get people back to work and create the conditions to host capital to make that happen. So I, th- I think you've answered part of the qu- next question, but I wanted to know what you were setting out to do with an exercise like this, because it's, it's apparent that government measures are still some time in coming in terms of the recovery. So what, did, what was the council trying to do with this? Well, early days, uh, I've got to give the government credit. They were uh, decisive in their leadership. They were focused. They had a common plan, and they brought people together collaboratively to manage public health and the public health care system. But what became evident in the conversations that we were having hourly in some instances, both with the province and the federal government, is they were overwhelmed with the complexity of what was going on around the pandemic and the health consequences specifically. And so uh, we started having conversations in late April, early May around 
what would this look like? You know, if you go back to March, everyone thought, well, we'll beat the curve down, and then three months later, we'll get back to some sense of new normal. Three weeks later, three days. <laughs> we were and, expecting and, to be out of the thing fast. The turning point for us is our chief economist, Ken Peacock, who's been on your podcast a number of times, uh, was one of the first people, frankly, in the country. He did a bottom-up analysis of BC's economy by sector, and he came in to Jock and I and said, I've gone through these numbers five times. I think we've got a massive problem here of 7 to 12% decline in GDP, which, to put it in context, that the best-case scenario is three times bigger impact than what we saw in the 08-09 Great Recession. And if we got to the upper end of that, it would be catastrophic. And so we put that out, and we've now, I think, revised our forecast, uh, Kurt, uh, three or four times, but that was the catalyst for us to say, we're going to have to do something. And this is a collaborative effort. It's going to be private sector capital that's going to get us out of the hole, given 95% of the job loss has been in the private sector. But we've got to start to unshackle ourselves from structures and processes and rules that uh, were put into place in some instances in the 1940s, like uh, the PST, and start thinking about what a future uh, innovative, high productivity um, economy looks like to really leverage our strengths. We we hide under a bushel all kinds of great things that go on here and two things happen. Either the investment doesn't take place and they wither or, and or that investment goes somewhere else as is in the case increasingly with our natural resources sector. Or the second side of the equation is that uh, uh, global investors come from abroad, buy up great IP and take it elsewhere when we buy it back at retail. So the plan is really focused on, let's get on our front foot for once. Let's use this crisis as an opportunity. Let's lever our talent, lever the assets, lever the innovative strengths, and our traditional industry, which are half the GHD intensity of competing jurisdictions around the stuff that we sell to the world. Uh, forestry, mining products, aluminum, natural gas, all the things that people need in a low carbon environment going forward. EV cars need four times more copper. Well, guess what? Highland Valley copper has uh, GHD intensity. It's about half of what it would be in other jurisdictions. So let's get on our front foot and celebrate the good things that we do. Yeah, I mean, nobody would assume that an NDP provincial government would necessarily be business friendly. But you you did say, you know, at the beginning, they were listing quite a lot. They were doing quite a, quite a few things in a hurry to, uh, to help you know, help the adjustment going on here. And same at the federal level. How well do you think government is listening right now in terms of the, the you know, the exercise that you provided here today and, and what your expectations are? I, th I think government has all kinds of uh, definitions. So government writ large, I'd put the federal government, the provincial government, municipal and regional governments into that. I don't think that people actually understand in elected office the huge hole that we are in. This is not a recession. All recessions over the last number of years have been uh, recouped by consumer spending and the consumer is going to be tapped out. In fact, going into this was tapped out. Secondly, as we had a bunch of weaknesses going in and a slowing economy in January and February, let alone uh, as a consequence of COVID. And so I would argue the federal government has uh, acted very quickly to protect individuals and provide some initial supports like CWS, but there is no evident plan at the national level around how we're going to position Canada going forward. And we've become a high cost jurisdiction in a world that is self-interested and more isolated and Hobbesian, as I've said on your program before, where it's everyone out for themselves. And Canada is still living in a you know, neoliberal, uh, globalized environment that doesn't exist anymore. 
In BC, um, there's been some measures taken, but most of them have just been deferrals. And I would say largely the provincial government has not had an economic recovery strategy. We've had a health recovery strategy. Masking is an economic strategy. And we can coast through the summer on CERB and CWS and some of the deferrals, but there's a reckoning coming in in the fall. And I'm really worried about that around insolvencies, around uh, government governments that can no longer afford to pay those benefits. And we're going to have to step up and pass the baton to the private sector, but we need the rules and the structures and the process to make that happen. Yeah. What kind of forecast? I know these forecasts change about every hour, Greg, but <laughs> what kind of forecast do you have right now in terms of the fall? Well, we've got, uh, you know, forecasting is a dangerous sport these days, but uh, uh, we're comfortable that we're at 7.8% decline in real GDP for 2020 with a rebound next year of just over 4%. But to put that in context, uh, you know, 4% doesn't get you nearly uh, half of the way back to where we were before. And uh, Tip Macklem just last week at the Bank of Canada talked about a really bumpy recovery. And obviously that's a uh, consequence of, um, you know, increased transmission that will happen over time as we open economies up. Uh, our neighbors to the south that are still 50% of our export market, uh, and we're oversubscribed as a country, uh, BC a little bit less so, but what's going on in terms of transmission rates there are going to have a profound impact on Canada. And there's a global recession. I saw some data the other day. I think over 97% of the countries of the world are now in a recession. And so muted demand globally, uh, uh, a, a semi-closed border, certainly for tourism and individuals, and, and the fact that we're a high-cost jurisdiction where we've got to create a reality set to attract capital to get people back to work is going to be key. I should point out for our uh, our viewers that actually there is some economic activity taking place just outside your window. They're building it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> <laughs> the exact hammering going on there. Um, yeah, sorry, but but it, it is a hole, but it is a good hole because there's economic activity happening. Yeah, it's a it's a necessary problem at the moment. Um, uh, one of the things that you can sort of see is that when people get a time to reflect, they also, in a sense, get time to dream. And one of the one of the dreams that appears to be taking place among some in our economy is just that we can not only recover, but we can come out of this with a whole other type of economy, uh, one that is greener and, and, you know, we can turn our back on resources and all that. Your report doesn't really lend much credence to that idea, does it? Well, I mean, first of all, we don't give ourselves enough credit in British Columbia for what we do. Uh, everywhere else in the world around climate change is aspiring to what BC did in the 1950s and 60s. You know, if everyone went to hydroelectric power and used low uh, GHG intensity natural gas the way we do, global climate would be a much better position. And as I said earlier, we've got a low carbon advantage here. The things we sell to the world uh, are half the GHG intensity. But what gets missed in the general conversation, particularly in political realms, is that you can snap your finger and all of a sudden replace hundreds of trillions of dollars of infrastructure and also that you know, magically technology appears that can be scalable at a commercial level that's reliable. And that just doesn't happen. If you talk to experts, uh, David Jurgen and others around the world that follow energy, uh, Peter Terzakian is another one out of Calgary. Um, these things are, take some slow evolution. Even uh, solar panels and clean technology, while it's growing rapidly, it's still a small fraction of the overall energy production uh, going forward. 
So the, the goal is to say, in a transition, how do we reduce our emissions here? But most importantly, how do we become a solution for global climate and uh, climate mitigation going forward? And so in the plan, we're saying, look, we've got some real strengths. Let's become the global center for emissions and sequestration. We've got the second largest land mass in the world. There's nature-based solutions. We heard from Terramera today that there are literally hundreds of tons, uh, pardon me, hundreds of billions of tons of carbon that could be sequestered in BC's agricultural land reserves if yeah. we use smart technology. Uh, there's a lot of work we're doing with indigenous leaders around nature-based solutions using forestry. So let's own carbon offsets where companies are going to zero net 50, i.e. in 2050, they wanna be net zero emissions. They're going to have to buy offsets to do that. If I'm a bank or if I'm a transportation company or Microsoft is going to be negative net uh, zero by 2050. Um, let's buy the offsets here that are high quality. Let's use technology to verify those offsets and let's create the financial structures and instruments to actually benefit from the transactions that take place as a result. We can do that both uh, from a credibility standpoint, from a technology standpoint, from a land mass and innovation standpoint. So one, uh, one institution that I think you also rivet in on in this report is education. And education being almost like a lifelong education that's required, yeah. including reskilling of a mid-career workforce, those kinds of things. Tell me a little bit about what the vision is for this over the next five to 10 years in order to effect a, you know, a more efficient workforce and something that, that has all the skills that are necessary and yet you know, it is, is obviously going to be a, a reshaping of conventional post-secondary institutions. Well, again, I would argue that one of the most disrupted sectors during COVID has actually been education specifically and post-secondary education uh, uh, here in British Columbia and around the world. And the context is that everyone went from in classrooms to online learning. And what we know through the research is that while online learning is helpful, there has to be some balance. It's how you form relationships, how you actually collaborate. Uh, in a lot of areas of study, you need to be in a lab or you need to be in close proximity to other people to make sure that the research and or the learning takes place going forward. But you touched on it. These narratives around lifelong learning have been going on for a while. COVID's just accelerated the fact that we have to do something about it. McKinsey wrote a report, I think about three years ago, saying that in Canada, we're gonna lose about 2 million jobs in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, through automation, through uh, technology, through sunsetting of sectors and others. But we're going to create 3 million jobs. And what it means is that if you're mid-career, you're going to have to reskill and deploy your knowledge and your life experience. But you're going to have to have some additional skills, likely in the innovative economy, to participate uh, fully. Secondly is that while BC's productivity has increased over the last number of years because our economy has been at full capacity, Canada and Western nations' productivity generally has been declining. What that means is there's lower wages. So a lot of that is around what are the skills I need, what are the technologies I can adopt, and ultimately the new jobs that are going to take place. So if I go to a mining company today, uh, Tech Resources is a great example. Two years ago, they didn't have anyone in digital analytics. Today, they've got 60 people, and they're likely going to hire another 40 or 50 more. There isn't a company in the economy that isn't becoming a digital business going forward. And if they aren't, they're going to fail in the years ahead. And that all takes research. It takes uh, work integrated learning so that students as young as grade five 
know uh, what the career paths are be and what they need to go forward on, whether it's mathematics or science or biochemistry or other things. And then third is how do we link up in a better way businesses with universities and post-secondary so that, you know, in BC, we've got 500,000 businesses, 98% of them have fewer than 50 employees. So how do we build cohorts of businesses to connect with post-secondary so that they're building curriculum they need and getting the talent and the skills that they need. And also universities, it's beneficial because they can move quickly. And many of them are around providing those kinds of curricula and those kinds of work integrated learning experiences. Yeah, integration uh, of, of the work experience. Um, obviously, a lot of people are gonna focus in on uh, the, the issue involving the tax change that you're proposing. Yeah. I wanna get a, a reading from you in what you think uh, slicing uh, the uh, the PST in half would do in terms of uh, economic stimulus, and then what you would see as the pathway toward a value-added tax in this province. Well, as I touched on earlier, um, consumer demand often gets you out of recessions and consumer spending, um, but that's going to be quite muted uh, in terms of uh, the ability for businesses to open fully and all the things that you're fully aware of and your listeners are. But Right now, there are communities and families struggling because they can't make ends meet. Either their income has been reduced or they've lost their job. And similarly, businesses uh, have seen their revenues uh, decline dramatically. And for that matter, governments have seen their revenues decline dramatically, in part because of lack of spending uh, and PST collection. And so the short term is, is that we can put money in consumers' pockets and they'll push forward or carry forward their spending. So it will generate economic activity going forward. Secondly, is it will help um, particularly small and medium-sized enterprises on the consumption side of the equation, but also on the fact that they're carrying higher operating costs, whether it's for PPE or whether it's uh, in terms of some of the complexities they're dealing with with labor. Uh, those kinds of things will help them become at least a bit more profitable in the short term. And also those most vulnerable in society, actually they were the biggest cohort hurt by return to the PST from the previous HST. Uh, they lost the HST uh, subsidy, which is equivalent to 7%. And so the consequence is that we're at a point in time now where, as you've heard me say, Kirk, we've got a tax that we use that was constructed in the 1940s when the queen was a princess. And my grandfather ran a couple of hardware stores. He passed away 30 years ago and the hardware stores are no longer the same hardware stores they were in 1950. So we, we consume online, we, we change the way that we've lived. Our population is more than doubled in that period of time and we've moved to a service economy. So we're not even capturing uh, a consumption tax for where most of the economy is, let alone where it's gonna go. So the pathway going forward is let's give people a break, let's get the economy moving, let's get consumption and let's create some uh, less overhead for businesses, uh, particularly that are vulnerable with their balance sheets right now. And then let's start to have the real conversation of creating a tax that's made in BC, controlled in BC, that gets us on our front foot, that makes us competitive, that attracts investment and drives the digital economy that we're going to have in the future. Would a, would a value-added tax, Greg, uh, necessarily mean more government revenue? Oh, well, it can. I mean, right now, if you think about it, uh, the PST was set up as a goods uh, producing tax and it's been added on as so complex. You know, a great example is, uh, you know, there's been a huge e-bike phenomenon right now. People are buying e-bikes and it's good for the environment and people are enjoying it. 
and you see them everywhere. So in BC, here's the perversion that we've got. If I buy a bicycle, there's no PSD. If I buy a unicycle, there is PSD. If I buy an e-bike, there's PSD. If I buy a, a carrier or a pannier or mud flaps, I pay PSD on those. If they're on the bike when I buy it originally, I don't pay PSD. Or more perversely in industry, my favorite example is I can buy a, a large canister of propane to use for my business. If I use it for some purposes, I don't pay PSD. If I use it for other purposes, I do pay PSD. So the perversion is it's the same gas in the same tank. Why on earth is there a difference? And you could go through the tax code repeatedly. So yeah. back to, you know, it's it, the, the complexity of compliance and, and just the ridiculousness of it. And then you've got this whole other economy where we've been entertaining ourselves online, buying online, dating online, going to the doctor online, learning online, and we don't capture any of that digital economy. So you could broaden it out and probably lower the tax rate and make it more effective for consumers yeah. and for businesses. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm wondering about too is what kind of a process would we want to have and maybe what kinds of process we should talk about when there is yeah. an eventual election campaign mm -hmm. in order to make sure that this isn't just the government broadly applying a bat at a high rate that uh, that you know penalizes the consumer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it means an honest conversation. You know, taxes are uh, necessary in order, we've seen them in play right now where the federal government's doled out over $400 billion to look after families and communities. You can argue whether all of it was appropriate and structured properly, but that's where tax money goes is to uh, provide the services, needs and infrastructure that we want and, and require as a, as a society. But I think the conversation is to say, let's be honest with ourselves. The world's changing and is changing dramatically. We're not affordable. We're a high cost jurisdiction. And we've got a really interesting economy here that's open trading and small. And so let's structure a tax that gives us a competitive advantage. And I don't just mean businesses making more money, although it's important if you're going to attract uh, investment, but it's also setting up society and those most vulnerable to make sure that they're protected and supported by the tax. And so, for example, maybe you exclude uh, food services and, and foods, foodstuffs going forward, uh, where there's sometimes disproportionate access to, to convenience meals by lower income folks. So let's have that honest conversation instead of the politic that often happens around taxes going forward. Yeah. Last question. Uh, it has to do with, uh, again, uh, politically, what becomes quite expedient when uh, economic difficulty ensues is uh, governments uh, want to uh, basically activate a lot of infrastructure projects. You know? uh, they really believe that those are the, you know, the, the quick job creators and those kinds of things. Where do you come down on that as part of the economic recovery uh, when you consider that when I looked at, at the report today, a couple of dozen recommendations, a lot of them are really more about systemic changes and not necessarily project. Well, I mean, I don't think Kirk, you can put everything in one bucket of, of uh, public sector spending or private sector spending or short-term spending versus long-term spending. But as we articulate in the plan, uh, there's a bunch of pent-up private sector projects from housing to ports to smart infrastructure that are sitting there waiting for some approvals and private sector wants to get moving. Let's get going on those. Um, you know, if the city of Vancouver needs to take six years to approve something that's longer than the second world war, let's just get on with it, make it happen. 
and particularly on rental housing and multifamily housing. It takes two years to build those projects and we get people back to work, but also provide housing opportunities. But I think in doing that, let the private sector figure out where they can make um, some really smart investments. So it's hard infrastructure, but it's also things like LNG bunkering, a Tilbury plant that, uh, that Fortis is advancing right now. That is a fuel of the future going forward and it will reduce emissions. Um, so Richmond City Council voted against it. Well, I can tell you everyone else in the world would die to have those kinds of projects going underway. So let's think about where the, you know, the Wayne Gretzky is, Gretzky is and where's the puck going? How do we incent those investments like broadband and connectivity that are gonna drive a digital economy going forward? So if I'm a, a, a mine or a natural resource manufacturer uh, in Dawson Creek or in, in Prince George, how can I stream my data uh, for regulatory compliance going forward? How can governments facilitate that in the plan we talk about being the first digital regulator for land use, climate and environment? So those kinds of investments around the digital infrastructure, smart infrastructure on how we uh, look after ourselves, how we move people and how we actually move goods is going to be vital. Yeah, we have to close out the conversation here, but I want to make sure that everybody gets the website where the report is today. Yeah, so, so uh, three things, I think. One is uh, it's at strongertomorrowbc.com. Uh, get online. The report's there. The recommendations, there's a short version. You can click on the things that interest you. There's also packages. If you want to go out and talk about specifically what your business could be doing under a plan like this to create opportunity to have a job-rich recovery and rehire people or to re-educate people going forward. And third is, uh, we'd like to hear from you. You may have other ideas. You've asked questions, for example, on tax or infrastructure. Uh, we haven't baked the cake here. It's quite humble. We've done a bunch of research, but there's still lots of in information and, and uh, insights that could be provided by businesses. So get on and, and share your opinion and sh start to shape and build momentum around the things we're talking about that are gonna make us stronger tomorrow starting today. Sorry for the plug, but uh, uh, but it's strongertomorrowbc.com and, and uh, it, it's vital now because we're at a crucial crossroads and we're gonna get left behind if we're not purposeful. Greg Davignon, always good to have you on the program. Thanks a lot for your help today. Thanks so much, Kirk. Appreciate it. Greg Davignon of the Business Council of British Columbia. You've been watching BIV Daily. I'm Kirk Point. BIV, we'll see you again.